You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. The Sportsman's Nation is a 2% for conservation certified business. And on August 21st, you can join other conservationists all over the world in supporting Community Conservation Day. It's a day for anyone to give their time and or dollars back to their local ecosystems and favorite conservation causes. For more information on how you can participate, visit fishandwildlife.org. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Vortex Optics. Welcome back once again, ladies and gentlemen, for another episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Hopefully everybody's having a good end to their spring i'm always the guy who feels that june 1st is like the kickoff of summer despite what the meteorological whatever that calendar uh says but uh i'll tell you this right now um i'm getting ready like i'm getting ready to cast the net so to speak and what i mean by that is i'm getting ready to go put out like man i don't even know like 15 to 20 trail cameras and uh i'm just gonna start rotating them and 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 checking them and and trying to locate this year i'm gonna be checking trail cameras a lot more i've i've i'm i'm making a commitment right now so uh earlier uh, (laughs) so later in the summer when you hear me talk about how i've only checked my trail camera once i'm giving you permission to twist my arm and peer pressure me into going out and checking my trail cameras because there's something about me that really wants to kill a big old mature whitetail this year and uh, one way to do that is to find where they live so i'm going to be doing some scouting this summer um, I've already done, uh, you know, I'm not going to say a lot of scouting, but um, a good amount of scouting this spring on a couple farms and, and public pieces that uh, are around me. I'm really going to be putting some uh, some uh, more energy into trail cameras, uh, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick up a couple cell cams, I think, for this upcoming season. And just to, you know, just to see what's moving around when it's moving around. Uh, last year, a majority of the uh, the pictures that I received from my cell cams were young deer and the mature bucks were all nocturnal. So it told me that there, there was deer in the area, but not necessarily, um, you know, not necessarily the kind of information that I could move in on right away. With all that said, I am uh, looking forward to doing start starting the process, so to speak, and, and getting fired up for this upcoming season. Now, today, oh, by the way, I did not draw Wyoming this year, so I'm a little bummed about that. Tough shit, it happens. But uh, now I got to figure out if I want to go to Idaho or if I want to go to uh, Colorado, uh, either to go hunt a unit in Colorado or to go and hang with a buddy who he finds out this week if he draws a a special unit in Colorado so I might go just to hang call and pack pack out or I might go and uh, I don't know 
we'll, we'll see. Uh, I might go hunt. I might go to Idaho. Uh, there's still some things up in the air. Definitely know that I'm going to South Dakota for mule deer. Definitely know that I'm going to be in Iowa for the rut. And depending on if I kill a deer in Iowa, if it comes early or late, whenever, I'm going to try to go to Missouri for like a four-day quick rut hunt because I, I'm pretty sure whitetail tags are over to the counter in Missouri. So that's what's uh, coming up for me today. We have an actually, actually, we have a really good episode. Uh, I'm talking with a guy named Roth. His name is, or his name is Roth. He's out of Missouri, and we have one of those conversations about hunter growth. And I don't mean from like growing taller or wider. I mean growing from mistakes, learning how to hunt learning how to take data and turn it into a strategy if that makes sense using information whether that's deer sighting or trail camera pictures and taking that information and turning it into a strategic move that gets you closer to let's say a target buck or a buck that you've seen a couple days in a row or trail camera data or all that stuff so we have a a really good episode uh, coming your way i talk about some of my past experiences he talks about growing up and learning from his past experiences and and where he's at today and where i'm at today so it's just a, a really good episode about um you know it's not only strategy but it's like process and it's about learning how to make act like the best decision off of information that you have whether that's annual data or you know current data so uh pretty pretty cool episode we're gonna do two, a couple commercials real quick lone wolf i'm telling you right now like if you haven't gone if you haven't been to lone wolf hunting products.com this is a, a a product. It's a, a stand that is like an appendage to me, right? So my go-to system is four sticks, four of their climbing sticks, and the Assault. It's the smaller platform. I do use the Alpha, which is the bigger platform, but I tend to pre-hang those before the season starts in places where I know... Uh, like historically good rut spots like pinch points fence crossings staging areas um, and uh, even some even some bedding area type stuff for the most part I think last year I had two out this year I'll probably have three of them out so uh, those are what I use for more of my uh, I don't know my uh, rut my rut historically good rut spots but uh i'm I'm an assault guy my running gun setup is an assault with four sticks they do have a climber um i don't use it but i'll tell you what the guys who uh have been running lone wolf climbers are the guys who have been running lone wolf climbers for a long time they're huge if you uh if you want a good climber you know lone wolf has that so go to lonewolfhuntingproducts.com check out their assortment of sticks stands and accessories and uh they have a they have a pretty cool uh, like a, a combo where it is the i don't even what the hunt ready system so that is like uh the stand and the sticks you can buy it all at once and if you want to get a discount here if you decide to purchase anything over 200 bucks you're going to get a discount of 50 dollars. so that's depending on what you buy it's roughly 18 to 25 percent off and you have to use the discount code 9fc21 9fc21 that's going to save you 50 dollars off of all purchases over 
$200. off all purchases over $200. Yeah, I said that right. And uh, LoneWolfHuntingProducts.com. Now, the next uh, thing we're talking about here is the um, Ozonics, right? And they've come out with some pretty cool... Uh, some pretty cool products here recently and one of them is the uh, the little ozonics adapter you can plug into your cigarette lighter in your car or your uh, outlet in your car and you can run an ozone uh, I guess you'd call it an ozone uh, dry wash out of your vehicle and one one thing I really like about that is you can run it let's say you're getting gas or you know, like for me, maybe I'll grab a burger and throw the wrapper on the floor until I get to, you know, before I throw it out. And over the course, or if it's wet, right, if it's raining and you're doing a lot of hunting, you get that moisture and that bacteria type smell in your vehicle. And you run one of those, cleans everything out, and you're good to go. So uh, take a look at that. And um, so they have the new Ozonics unit for the cigarette lighter. They have the Orion. They have the HR300, the HR230. Uh, which is more of a more of a hunting blind type uh, unit but I'm telling you right now if you if you haven't dabbled in ozone and have read about what o3 does to scent and bacteria you really need to because I feel you're missing out and in the long run I feel like uh, running in ozonics not only in the tree but in their dry wash bag or their closets is going to save you from having to wash your clothes over and over and over. Like I used to be the guy who washed my clothes maybe once every two days. Now I, I, wa- I wash it maybe once or twice uh, a hunting season if I get blood on it or if it's like heavily caked in mud or, or really wet or something like that. That's the only time I wash them. So uh, it has its benefits. Ozonicshunting.com is the website. Go check it out. And if you do purchase a unit, you're going to get a free dry wash bag when you enter the discount code NFC21. NFC21. So go take uh, a look at that. Ozonicshunting.com. Those are the commercials, my friends. Thanks for uh, being patient as I whore myself out and make a living doing these commercials. So, uh, uh, please go and support the companies that support this product. Be sure you guys are following on Instagram and Facebook. Be sure you guys are subscribed to the Nine Finger Chronicles RSS feed on iTunes or wherever you downloaded your podcasts, along with the Sportsman's Nation RSS feeds or any of the other uh, podcasts that are on the Sportsman's Nation. So uh, thank you very much. Let's get into today's, uh, we'll call it a BS session, but there's a lot more hunting strategy and uh, information than just a BS session in this episode. So stick around and uh, we'll see you on the back end. Three, two, one. All right. On the phone with me today, Mr. Roth Mallon. Roth, how you doing, man? Pretty good, Dan. Good deal. All right. So you're pulled over on the side of the road right now. Okay, and we're getting ready to record this uh, this podcast. So why don't we kick it off by telling me what where do you live and what do you do for a living? So I live in Missouri, uh, just north of Kansas City, a little ways, and I sell seed corn, soybeans, alfalfa, and uh, cattle mineral predominantly. But we can make and sell any kind of mineral. Gotcha, so. gotcha. How's business? Pretty good. Uh, seeds starting to wind down. Just everybody's starting to get stuff planted. 
Yeah. Um, I sell, still sell up in Iowa a little bit. So, um, you know how dry it was there for a while. Yeah. The only thing stopping guys was how cool the weather was getting. And then the mineral business is really consistent. Uh, just, uh, cattle prices going down and guys not <laughs> wanting to try and pinch some pennies. We yeah. all know how that is. I, I gotcha. Let me ask you this about seed corn because, um, my grandpa, I had, I had one grandpa, who he followed the price so he would buy seed seed corn or soybeans from whoever had the cheapest and then i had my other grandpa who he was loyal to i think it was pioneer his entire life he bought he bought his seed from pioneer every single year no matter what no matter what the prices were so just out of curiosity what drives like the price of seed corn or soybeans for the for the average farmer uh, price wise is really just the product, the genetics and the product. I mean, product is as far as performance and how it fits their operation. Yeah. I mean, thing with the pioneers just got a, you know, a, a, a brand behind it. That's kind of like, you know, nine fingers, yeah. just <laughs> the top growing. of the class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay so then um uh I, I mean whenever i mean i'm in iowa so every commercial on the radio these days you know especially during planting season is plant this because it has the highest yield and yield and yield best return yield best return back and forth back and forth so how how if every company is saying that they have the best yield you know our our, our corn's going to have the best yield our soybeans are going to have the best yield how does how does a guy going in and buying uh, seed corn or uh, soybeans like wade through all that to get to what is the best possible, I guess, uh, soybean or corn for them? Well, that's why people deal with me and my dealers and, you know, the, the people that they usually buy corn from is because they have the knowledge in a more localized area of, you know, for, for me, example, an example for me, I have guys that have bottom ground that can raise, you know, 300 bushel corn. And then I also have guys that have absolutely, I'm not going to call it terrible. It's just not as productive. And we need different products for, you know, the, the lower, higher yielding areas and then lower yielding areas and being able to have a local um, knowledge base there to help place those products. That's yeah. the biggest thing, you know? So are you a, uh, do you sell a whole bunch of different brands or do you rep one brand in particular? No, I sell, um, I sell one brand. Um, and, and that's, so the reason why I chose this one is because they actually, so the way the corn seed is produced anymore, there's like three or four major companies that produce the products. Right. And then, you know, obviously you got your pioneers, you got your, um, BASF and decal Basgro and, and then you have, they all have a genetic platform. They pick through what they want, which a lot of times is more regional 
you know, so they may cover a bigger area with their products yeah. where my company goes in and says, okay, well, this product for our more localized area is going to be a better fit for our growers versus, you know, kind of blanket application with the certain select hybrids. I gotcha. And so okay. that's where that's, so we actually, this, this company actually has access to plat, platforms of three different kinds where sometimes you go with the, you know, a specific major brand that does its own breeding. You're kind of stuck down that rabbit hole of I'm going to plant all of the, yeah. you know, pioneer breeding genetics. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. So it, so it sounds to me like there's way more that goes into making a decision on what seed you're going to plant in the ground than just going to like a co-op or, or your seed salesman and saying, yep, bring me, you know, this many bags. There should be. Yes, yeah. there should. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. Well, not, this... a, not every farmer does, does that though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. Well, good thing this isn't an ag report podcast because that's where everything ends with me. Like, I don't know anything else about farming other than what I just talked about as far as seed corn and uh, soybeans are, are concerned. So, but what I do know a little bit about is, uh, is deer hunting. And it sounds like, you know, a little bit about it too. And, um, you sent me a message via Instagram about growth, about not like growing big or tall or antlers, but growing as a hunter. And we're going to get into some of those stories and, and some of that today, but I want to kick it off with, why don't you talk to me a little bit about your i guess your introduction into hunting did, did you come from a hunting family did you start later on in life kind of break that all down for us yeah so you know this is definitely not a new hunter interview i've been i'm 30 almost 34 the end of the week i'll be 34 and i uh been tagging along with my grandpa bird hunting rabbit hunting squirrel hunting since i well safety minded probably not the best i don't recommend it but <laughs> literally my grandpa when i was seven years old six seven years old i couldn't cock the hammer on a 410 single shot and he would put me at the end of the ditch and cock the gun he says do not shoot anywhere but these directions if a rabbit comes through <laughs> Right. Right. So, and he would walk the ditch to me and I would shoot the rabbits. And of course, grandpa got all the rabbits on the way to me, it seemed like. But yeah. that was my gun hunting. Grandpa was a bird, rabbit, gun hunter. And my dad was, my dad was the bow hunter. Gotcha. And we would go to the, the archery shoots um, uh, when I was a kid. So the 3D was big for my dad. We had a club and. I remember I've got pictures of me being in the peewee division and being the only kid there getting first place in like coveralls and a hat with my little longbow. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> so you started off fairly early, right? I mean, it oh, was, yeah. it was from yeah. day one, you were either in the field tagging along with someone or behind the bow shooting. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Did you know, 
did you ever go through that stage? You know, I, I know I'm fast forwarding, fast forwarding a lot here, but did you ever go through that stage when you were a kid where, Hey man, I've been doing this so long, um, that you lost interest in it a little bit and then came back to it? Or has, have you been gun ho from peewee league archery all the way to today? Um, the closest I ever came, which I never lost it, but, uh, was a college athlete. And, uh, there was a point in time when I was in college where basically it was like, okay, I need to focus on that. Yeah. And, so the hunting went by the wayside. Now that doesn't mean that I gave up, but just the hours in the field was not, you know, as yeah. prevalent. And in high school, we were, I was a part of a pretty successful football team in high school. And it was one of those, that was your main priority. So I didn't get to hunt a whole lot. Yeah. Um, I I often wonder about this, right? Obviously basketball goes through, the hunting season football goes through the hunting season um baseball if if your team is good you know and you make it to the playoffs it go it can go all the way up until um october i think hell the the world series is that played in october or november you know i thought it was like august september like a college world series well i guess the yeah the major leagues october. yeah major leagues that's what i'm saying like um and obviously collegiate for the most part goes through those same time frames i always thought it you know like if i had to choose between hunting and being a collegiate athlete or a professional obviously the money right of the the professional <laughs> yeah. would have a lot to do with it but you know you talk to these some of these guys like bo jackson he is a big time hunter chipper jones big time hunter and just to name two right yep. there guys who yeah. you know loved love hunting but had to do this first I, I wonder how they kind of fed their addiction while they're playing their sports like i don't know how, how did you well, feed your addiction well i just i found minutes and time to go like when i was in college so the funny part was so i would i was weird kid and the fact that uh you know every college student's like i want the class from 10 to 3 right and we all know why you wanted those classes to yep. sleep in and then you know the night activities but i would schedule classes from 9 to 11 yeah i would have three classes just bang 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 and my practice wouldn't start till like four or five in the evening and I would get out of school at 11, and I'd say, well, I'm going to go study in the tree. And I'd just go find a piece of public and scout it out and crawl up in a tree and actually screwed up on some really big deer on public land in Missouri just because I was sitting there with a book <laughs> studying at noon. And you're like, what kind of deer is going to show up at noon and – you look down and there's a, a nice, a really nice eight, eight pointer standing at five yards. You're like, uh, you're trying to slide your book in the bag. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I bet you there's people that do that, especially guys who own their own companies. Like if I had Wi-Fi that could travel with me and not just mobile data, but if I could get Wi-Fi in a tree stand, 
or I'm sure there's days that I would pull a laptop into the tree with me, but yep. that's dangerous. Like I hear about it, you know, I've heard, <laughs> I have buddies, you know, Hey, I was on my phone doing something, you know, scrolling through something and one social platform or the other. And I look up and there's a, a shooter staring, you know, like staring right at me or he's past you or whatever. And they can creep in on you. That's crazy. Um, so, so you got into the, the college, uh, you know, the college athlete and the, the high school athlete, you did that once college was over. Um, did you kind of jump back into it, uh, f- like full bore because you had missed it, missed it, missed out on it? Or did you kind of ease your way back into it? So I was from Missouri and that brings its own challenges, you know, as far as rifle season being right in the middle of the rut. Yeah. And uh, so to jump back in, so my first job out of college happened to be in Albia, Iowa. Oh. So you talk about... Uh, the you Mecca. Talk about, <laughs> you talk about a dream for a kid who loves hunting and then getting out of college and finding a job in retail ag in Albia, Iowa. I was like, this well, first night in the stand, which was the opening weekend, I think. Uh, I could have shot the biggest buck with a bow on a field edge <laughs> that I would have ever been able to shoot in Missouri. You know, it's just like, what? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Now, obviously, I did not because I was like, it's there's way you know there's a there's a Boone and Crockett around every corner in Iowa, you know. <laughs> right. So, right. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, I'm going to pass on that one. No way. Yeah. You're bragging to your buddies. And then, actually, I hunted a lot. But that's where my growth was because up until that point, all I knew was you find a funnel. I'd read somewhere you find rut funnels and you sit there. Yeah. Right? And so I've – I. It didn't take long because that was the only buck I saw that night on that field edge. It was the only deer I saw, probably a year-and-a-half, two-year-old eight-pointer. And I was like, this is not going to happen. i got to get down in, uh, you know, off this field edge and find a major pinch point. Yeah. And then I set. You know, like I went in, found it, sat there first night, shot a doe. And four other does came in. I'm like, this is perfect, October 12th, 15th. And then I stayed out of there until the last week of October. Yeah. And I mean to tell you, that tree could tell stories about me screwing things up. Yeah. So let's, <laughs> let's talk about pre-growth, though. Let's talk about the kind of hunter that you were um, before you had some of these aha moments, before you were able to learn from your failure, talk about who that hunter was. So, you know, as a kid growing up, you set up a tree stand in September, you know, and you're like, Oh, this is going to be good. And then you just burn through a circuit of six, seven stands. And, you know, my, my family owned a, has a cattle operation. So, you know, I just, well, let's go to the, the wind. My dad was a, an archery hunter, so I learned about the wind early on. But it was just the wind. There was no thermals or anything brought into it at all. So, you know, you, 
you go sit in the tree stand and well you can't dad i don't know why but we got this awesome trail in the bottom and right at dark i get busted every time these deer start rolling in you're like what is going on here but well it must have i must have just stank too bad so yeah one of those you just burn through the circuit of preset stands and field edges or some off in in down in the timber but there was no scouting involved i mean other than just walking around early in september and saying oh this looks like a good spot and crawling up in that was that was about the extent of it yeah and then just hoping that something awesome came by yeah so you you know once the the season started did you find yourself ever making adjustments and and moving those tree stands or did did it not click for you yet that that was even a possibility you know your tree stands are in the tree and now we're gonna just we're gonna ride it out we'll see and for yeah so i was hunting when i was like 10 years old so the fact you know moving a stand that wasn't in the cards for me because my dad made a lot of our stands, so I'm, you know, the, it was out of a piece of, um, it was a piece of, like, pipe with steps welded on it. The dang thing weighed like 80 pounds, so it wasn't, <laughs> oh, let's just move this thing over here. The tree stand was, you know, made out of rebar, and <laughs> right. it was, it was definitely, there was not a move, it, like, if dad and i needed to make an adjustment it was like well let's just get on the ground and go sit over there yeah yeah so um <laughs> so, so when it started i mean as you started getting older right um you you know you talked about this you know sitting in a, in a particular tree that that had you had a lot of stories if the tree could tell stories about you making a mess of of things how old were you when you started realizing that man, this just isn't working anymore. I got to, I got to figure something else out. I got to start being potentially mobile, putting my tree stands in different locations, maybe doing some more scouting. How old were you at that point? So what brought about me getting more mobile was my, my dad's cousin came up and he had an old man tree stand climber and we went in and we set this tree stand up. I'm like, Oh, that's so awesome. And actually turkeys came through and he banged his riser off the front of this stand and he got so mad he threw it over on the ground and said i never want to see that thing again so i'm like you know 13 14 years old and i'm like can i have it yeah <laughs> and so i that's when i started of course that thing weighs like 50 pounds in itself and i started that way i went with another one of my dad's cousins and he had a really light hang on with screw in steps and we raced problem is is i couldn't get in as good a tree as he could and it was just a you know it didn't have the technologies that we have now but at least he could get in more trees than i could with just that light aluminum stand and steps so that was my next jump from the the climber to that right and that's when i really started saying okay well why well the other thing is is when i moved to college is when it really the mobile game really jumped out to me because 
when I was at home, we had farms with preset stands and you just knew where you were going to go sit. Yeah. When I went to college, it's like, I don't have that. So let's just go find a place and crawl up in a tree. And of course that was my first taste of public land too. And you're walking around, you're just like, there's stands everywhere in this big timber that looks great, but there's just stands everywhere. Yeah. So that was when I was like, well, let's, uh, maybe I should go find a, a place off the beaten path that's woolly and nasty that nobody else is going to go. And that's where I found, that's where I, you know, I, I ended up, there was a main, the west side of this lake had big timber and it had a finger that came off the northeast side and went to a fence line. And then there was a fence line that met that. And then on the east side of that, there was a really nasty pine thicket that was just, I mean, it was so thick you couldn't walk through it except for on the trail that they had blazed down and nobody was going over there. And I found at the point of that fence line, there was a massive scrape. I was like, well, let's go try it. You know, just crawled up in the stand. And that was where the first night I crawled into that stand, I I was hunting with my traditional bow. And I, it was a pin oak tree that the whole thing couldn't have been 15 foot tall, Dan. Like I literally climbed the branches up to where I wanted to sit. And as I look out, it's three o'clock, right? So I'm late. <laughs> at three o'clock, I look out, nothing. Look down at my bow for some reason. And I look over and there's a buck standing there looking looking back towards where the people normally walk into the other side of the lake. And this like would have been the biggest deer I would have shot up to that point. He, I look back at my bow and look up and this deer is gone. I'm like, where the heck did he go? I could have seen him wherever he went. So I look back at my bow and this deer is smelling the bow at the base of my tree. <laughs> and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm, I'm, I'm literally five foot from this deer's head at this point. <laughs> so, and that's when it was like, that was kind of the light bulb of, okay, find places people don't go yeah. and get, get a stand that's going to allow you to get there. Yeah. And so that was kind of the, the progression there of getting just growth as, you know, as a young kid and, yeah. Then you can branch out on your own. And then, so Iowa, I mean, that tree was dynamite. Yeah. (laughs) But it sounds to me that what led you to, like, what led you to get, like, get away from, was just, and and start moving around was that you didn't want to hunt by everybody else, right? All these tree stands, right? right? It's like, well, I'm in college now. I can't go back home every weekend. I'm in sports, so my time in the stand is limited. I, while I while my time is limited, I want to be, be put myself in the best possible position every single hunt because if I don't, I'm just wasting my time. So you you go in and you 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 start to hunt and you realize, Jesus, man, I, there's there's tree stands all over the place. I need to get away. <laughs> and then as you get away, is when you start having more encounters with you know with with deer. Yep. Yep. Well, what I thought that was that that tree stand also taught me another valuable lesson. So I was 
So that was the day I actually had a class at like one or two. The next day was the day that I got out at 11. So where do you think I went at 11 o'clock? Yeah. <laughs> I went and got right back in that stand. And what was amazing to me, Dan, is the buck that I had an encounter with the day before at one o'clock in the afternoon was underneath that stand. And I was looking at him over my book. Yeah. Because the way the trail went, like I was terrible shot angle stuff that, you know, we all kind of have to learn, but I, it was the only tree I could get in. And an hour later, two o'clock, a different buck comes from the opposite direction. That was almost the same caliber as that deer. And then, so we're two o'clock in the afternoon you think I saw another mature deer after two, three o'clock in the afternoon on that public ground that was just getting pounded by college kids? Yeah. I saw four does and a little five pointer that was a yearling. And I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. These deer, you know, are set up to watch people go over there to that. And they're not even moving at prime time on this public ground that people are pounding. Yeah. So and if I had midday been movement set up, yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, the fact that it was November fifth probably helped that. Yeah, but still, I mean, that just taught me a lesson. So that that's why I'm saying that. And I don't know how many times cell phones and not paying attention in those midday hunts has screwed it up for me. But yeah, I mean, I did miss a, that big tree in Iowa. I did miss a giant out of that tree. Yeah. <laughs> So other than, you know, so, so you realized that you needed to get away from the pressure. And then as soon as you got away from the pressure, you started having these encounters. Um, and then it sounds like as you had some of these encounters, you, you know, you were making some mistakes. What kind of mistakes were you like, I know you mentioned you had your nose in a book one day, you were messing around on your cell phone. You, maybe you had a miss, but what were some of the failures that, you kind of recognized and said, man, I got to get my shit together. Cause if I don't, I'm just going to keep missing, missing these opportunities. What kind of failures did you have, um, after, you know, while you were in this, this newly mobile phase and how did you walk away with learning from those failures? And so from there, I actually had a few years where I was, I got married to my wife and well, I hunted the same way. And then now I feel like now is where I've actually kind of even more turned the page and learning about thermals, learning about how deer stick to heavy cover along those timber edges and being able to just go in and hunt a place. That's where I have really turned the tide. I mean, I went from getting lucky in the rut most of the time or luck you make your own luck however you want to think about it yeah but i was a rut hunter and the last couple of years i learned more about thermals and you know i i'm um i learned about well youtube and the internet's kind of brought some of this stuff to light and now i'm sitting here going wow you've got to be kidding me i've screwed up so many times because i set up in a bottom at night and the wind and thermals suck all my scent down in there. So now you position yourself off to the side where it's not going to blow right down in there. And I'm finding too, that 
the the bigger mature bucks do not typically go where all of the other deer are traveling. Okay. So that's where the, you know, those mistakes of, well, I'm going to hunt this trail where there's eight, you know, eight does that come through every night and the buck will come. Well, with me having kids and a wife and I kind of leave the rut hunting to the, the misses now. I've had to grow and try and figure out how I can kill deer earlier in the season. And, you know, how do you get on top of them when there's not as much of a, you know, the rut craze and that yeah. odd midday movement. Yeah. And that's where my real jump has been in the last three years. Is trying to find them during the, the early season? Yeah, hunting early season. Annual data is huge in between between trail cameras and actual sightings. So last season, and as part of it is I'm, I just wasn't being selfish, I guess. I guess but uh, so the opening weekend last season, so Missouri season starts September 15th. Yeah. And me and my buddies went in on this deer and they hunted, you know, my brother and my buddy, my buddy had a preset area where he could observe. My brother went into another area where I was going to blow my wind to. And then I went out to a point where I'd seen a really big buck the year before come out of the top of a grass patch. And he walked with the wind over the hill. Yeah. And it was one of those, I'm going to sit at the end of this. If he catches my wind, maybe he'll go back to my brother. If not, I'm going to be in that just off wind area. And where I screwed up is I had my recurve, Dan, because that deer walked out with three minutes left at 10 yards. <laughs> and I had a split second between him hitting my wind and getting, um, and, and making the shot. And I shot and I think the arrow just went right over him. Yeah. But <laughs> those dang recurves i've missed a lot of deer because of <laughs> but as far as putting yourself in the right position though right that's not for me that's not a failure uh the failure is right. you know hey you need to learn, learn to shoot your recurve better right <laughs> i mean that that's that's the weapon but as far as it you know as far as um putting yourself in position and you mentioned uh one thing i'd like to, you to elaborate on and that is when you mentioned that all these does were working this one trail, but the bucks weren't, they were on a different trail, you know, not yep. following down the same trail. Give, give us an example of what you mean by that. Because when I hunt, I kind of notice some of those things as well. Yeah. So actually my next missed opportunity, which I should have learned the first time, put the recurve down. But so the next, the next opportunity a buck I had last season, I walked in the standing cornfield and I found a, what I thought to be a buck bedding area, the the spring prior. Yeah. And so I walked this field edge in, and I know there's a major trail at the bottom of the hill. But I got the winds coming out of the west. I'm sitting on the east side of this grass patch in between the standing corn and the grass the major trail is west of me but it's downhill of an evening so i walk in and i crawl up in this tree 
the the bigger buck was actually I I had to have walked past him or bumped him or something. I don't know, but the buck was bedded either was out in the corn when he emerged. And he got up to within 10 yards facing me. And I'm not, with a recurve, I'm not taking that shot. Um, just, I'm not, I'm more confident with the compound to hit in the spot. But that deer stood there at 10, for probably 15 minutes, munching on an ear of corn looking at me. And where I'm going with this, about the last 15 minutes, I start hearing deer traveling that trail to the west of me where the wind, where the, the shade has kind of started taking over yeah, and those thermals start dropping. I needed, I needed my ozonics because as soon as the does and the younger bucks got below me, they just started blowing and then he got nervous. But that was another prime example. I was in the position because he was placed up on the top third of the hill with the wind, you know, blowing at his face. And the rest of them were coming that lower trail. So he was set up to kind of watch everything and smell everything where they were set up further and they traveled the trail and caught my wind from the thermals because the wind just died. So that's one of those situations where the buck was actually set up different than the does and if i would have set up on that trail for the does the buck would have been 50 yards away okay so you're starting to learn there that these these mature deer these mature bucks are just a little bit different of a creature when it comes to how they i don't access an open field or how they walk through the terrain yes yeah yeah okay um so how so one thing that i think people struggle with is they can identify those types of things that they can identify like okay he's coming through this terrain feature or he's looping downwind to scent check this field before he enters it or or whatever like people can identify deer patterns and deer movement and stuff like that but one thing that i know i always had trouble with was how to capitalize on that information right? It's how to make that move to put yourself into position once you identify how the deer are using terrain and whatnot. So how did you go from just saying, okay, now I know what they're doing to putting yourself into position to kill these deer? So what the biggest thing you got to do, Dan, is, and it's, it's, it's tough because we, you know, a lot of guys don't, have much time to be out there and when they're out there they want to see deer right but the one thing that i've done and i still see deer but it may be a deer is get you know you got to go to the odd spot where i might sit there and not see anything but the other thing is is that i may sit there and see you know one of the biggest bucks on the farm because he travels differently than everything else so getting the courage or the mental attitude of I've got to sit in a different spot if I want to hunt a different animal versus, you know, the seeing a lot of deer. That's, that was my biggest thing is going to these and I do a lot of spring scouting and that's huge. 
Um, I think just seeing the sign and finding, you can literally see different beds and bedding areas and sign and when you think it was laid down. But going, just, you know, going to the area where you don't think you're going to have a chance. Yeah. And that's that's what's really changed. Yeah. In my, you know. I struggled with that. No, that 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 is my biggest uh, I guess my what took me the longest like all right so I sat this field edge for x number of days or I sat uh, in this bedding area the x number of days and I saw 26 deer I saw 10 deer I saw whatever amount of deer and so you think that just because you see deer it's success like for me it was really hard for me to learn that you got to put yourself in the position to shoot the deer that you want to shoot, not see the deer that you want to shoot. So for me, it was really hard to make that jump to, to have this conversation with myself where I was like, listen, dude, if you're not going to, you need to be in this, in this spot, in this terrain feature or whatever, you're going to see way less deer right? You're not going to be able to glass all the time. You're not going to be able to um, count deer in the field or whatever. You're going to be in this, like, I think you mentioned this woolly, thick, nasty stuff that the one deer that you want to shoot is going to come through. So I ended up like, that was hard for me to put my tree stand in those, in those areas, knowing that I might not, I might be not seeing any deer. And when I did commit to that and started putting my uh tree stand in those positions i straight up saw less deer and it sucked like it sucked for the longest time until you start having those encounters with those deer that you want to start shooting right for and for me it was like oh man i'm passing up it's like i passed this i don't know he's like a a 140 class three-year-old one year and i was just like Oh my God, I just, I just passed this buck. I what am I doing? I just passed it. But then 10 minutes later, another deer comes through and he wasn't within shooting range, but he came through the the same terrain feature and, or I saw my target buck or uh, a hit lister came through and now I'm like, click, who cares about counting does, right? I want to put a target buck on the ground, right? Right. So I don't know that, that was hard for me. Well, and the other thing that I kind of stumbled onto it is, so one of the farms that I hunt, like the the second, the story I just told a minute ago about the buck being in the corn is I learned about observation stands and I was like, okay, well, I really don't have time for this. But what I found, Dan, is a lot of times your observation stands, it, they're just that oddball spot where I can see so much area well, why wouldn't a big buck want to sit up there and see as much area? He can protect himself from the wind and see, you know, a hundred yards, you know, that the, I just lucked into it last year of, you know, this is insane. I'll never see a deer here. Walk out to a point in the middle where I can see just miles almost. And at daylight, a shooter comes strolling and he was strolling right at my tree like he was going to be at 10 yards until the coyote decided to run him to 35 yeah <laughs> yeah and just that's one of those things it's just like well 
okay, so maybe observation is not a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. I tell you, though, um, for me, I don't hunt observation stands as much as I used to. If I need, like, if I have to, I will. Because there are a couple places where I, I always want to see what's coming off of the neighboring farm onto my, uh, onto the farm that I can hunt, and I'll set up a an observation stand. And I know typically I'm not going to, you know, maybe a, a doe or a young deer will come through. It'll give it'll give me an opportunity to potentially call a deer in if it's the right time of year. But then it's right back into making moves on you know onto right. some something over there. It's tough, man. I tell you, it it can be it can be tough trying to figure out how to you know how when to set an observation stand and when to make that move. Because when I would set an observation stand i would really start to go um maybe if i set this stand one more night i'll really get an idea yeah. of what's going on then you've wasted two hunts yeah. that aren't kill opportunities i don't know did you ever have that problem oh yeah yeah i mean you have it and i think you know where i'm trying to get better at early season hunts i had some really good hunts around the opener in the first couple of weeks but where it really wears on you is like mid October where the deer just aren't moving that much anyways. And you're kind of like, man, I'm just wasting time out here. I'm not seeing any deer and I'm not, but that's where the next thing that I've learned and grown as a hunter. Um, and you know, it's the hunting public and, you know, the hunting beasts and those guys have kind of brought it to light and they're, you know, most guys that are listening to me like, oh man, don't say it because you're just going to have more people going wandering around. But that's where I, I've just got to the point where I'll go find them. You know, like if I'm sitting there and I haven't seen anything, that's how I ultimately ended up killing my deer last year and had two more encounters is I had 200 and 200 acre row crop farm with ditches running through it. Uh, it was November, the, the first weekend in November, and I went and literally walked the whole thing, just took off standing corn, walked almost every ditch, every draw, found the sign, found the deer and, you know, got myself out of position with wind once and then knew a buddy had seen a good deer and I knew right where to go because I knew how he was traveling because I'd went in there in season and just said the heck with it. I'm just going to go walk through this and figure out where they're at. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, I, I honestly, it's kind of what more people need to do to be successful. But at the same time, you don't want, you don't, especially if you're sharing a piece of pro public property and I share a property where the guys, um, sit in the same tree stand all the time, like they're ladder stand guys, they're, they're, <laughs> They're doing the same thing. And if they started moving around, it it would probably throw a little bit of a wrench into my uh, system because there are times when I use tree stand, like them knowing where they're going to be, I use that as a, all right, I, I'm going to flank them and I'm going to try to yep. get between them. Like I'm going to get on the outside of them because they're there, then the deer are going to go this way around them or try to get downwind of them. And if I'm down... Sometimes I try to put myself downwind of another hunter. So if, yep. I don't know, because sometimes, depending if they rattle or if they call or whatever the scenario is, they're going to come 
downwind just to catch it and now but they may not go crazy and, and blow out of there but there i am right i'm close to them so i don't know yep so well and we do that a lot so yes it was a unique circumstance because that farm like i said it was just a bunch of ditches and a wide open cornfield and my brother and my buddy were like fine hunt it we don't care you know we got pictures of the big bucks over here on this other property and I was just like, fine, it's mine. I'm going to go, you know, do whatever I want to on it. And ended up luckily got, you know, one of the only, one of the three of us who got a really nice buck last year. But uh, the other thing is, is public land makes it really tough as far as you just got to, you know, find the deer. Yeah. And so that, and hunting down, downwind of those guys or areas where you know that, prime example that first story i told about the public land piece when i first started hunting a southwest wind those deer were sitting there smelling everybody who walked in on that trail they knew when people were going in there that's why i think i didn't see any deer from like three till dark is because you know or they were moving in opposite direction just like you were saying you could set up and hunt that yeah that's crazy um, so any other big, like failures that, or, or, or periods of growth that you've kind of gone through, uh, maybe even recently where, cause I know you have four kids now, right? So yeah. I have three, so I, I'm not hunting like I'm 20 anymore. I'm not going hard every single day of the season. Right. On top of that, right. uh, I have to schedule everything I do. So my wife has help with the kids and uh, if I'm going to go, you know, out West to hunt for a week, that means that I can't go crazy here until the rut for the most part, or maybe a cold front pops through. What kind of growth have you done from, uh, gone through as far as limiting the amount you actually hunt? And so that's, you know, part of the, one of the benefits of being a territory salesman is there's going to be times throughout the day where you don't have calls lined up. And so that's where the scouting comes in because, you know, some guys might take an hour lunch and instead of, you know, just going to the local restaurant and sitting there a day a week, I might just take my hour lunch or take a break and go walk, you know, Hey, last year, this time of year, I seen a good buck. Well, what if I go walk the, the, the transition edges and see if I can find sign of that deer. So in two days when, you know, the, the wife, you know, I don't have to help jockey kids to practices or dance. I can go, go hunt for that last two hours. That's the other reason why I like that early season is because you can kick out of work at six o'clock and still be in a stand for the last hour of daylight, you know, hang and hunt. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's been a big, a big thing. The other, the other learning curve I'm having is down here in Missouri where they have that rifle season and, you know, endless tags to out of state hunters. Um, it's one of those deals where it, it's really tough because, that late season, if you're trying to find a deer on public, because that's what I shot one deer on private, and then I was like, I'm gonna go hunt 
and get a buck on public. And you start trying to do that after, after you've had people in there with high powers and muzzleloaders and being hunted for two months, those deer get <laughs> yeah. really tough to hunt. And that's where, that's my biggest challenge right now is I want to get better late season, but finding those pockets of deer get really tough. Yeah. Especially if all the ag is picked and all of the, you know, the, the combines are real efficient and there's maybe all the acorns are, I don't know, eaten up depending on what kind of, you know, ground that you actually hunt, right? If you're in egg country or if you're in yeah. big, big timber, wherever. Yeah, man, it, that's, that's something that I'm, I try to figure out too, is where are these deer coming? F- you know, where are they at early season? But at the, at the same time, I just kind of document that through trail cameras and I'll check right. my trail cameras or I'll, I'll have a cell cam set up and, and just kind of document it. It's not that I can actually make a move on it because, you know, September, I'm going on a hunt in September for elk and I'm going on a, a hunt in uh, October for mule deer. And I typically, these, these last couple of years, man, I think I hunted, the first day I hunt bow hunted in Iowa was november 1st this year that's just that's it like i hunted november 1st in iowa and that was it uh get to start the rut that is a that's a very uh good time to start hunting in iowa yeah absolutely but you know what i mean like so it's not it's i'm not concerned about what a deer is really doing early season at the, unless he's so patternable it would be dumb for me like if I know if the the odds of actually going in and connecting on a deer who's making himself known on trail cameras uh, or a, a cell cam or something like that, it's so high that I'd be dumb not to do it, then I would do it. But for the most part, like I haven't been putting in enough effort early season to get the job done in early season. It'd be nice to because then I would have November open to maybe go to a different state like Missouri or Nebraska or something like that and, and hunt the rut in a different state. But man, I, I really think that it's uh, it's like for me, I'm I got the rut. That's what I hunt in Iowa. And uh, someday when when the kids are you know more self sustainable, then I might be able to like take advantage of hunting more during the early and late seasons but as far as late season is concerned i don't have any real row crop farm to hunt where the deer stick around because once shotgun season comes into play those those uh uh farms just get destroyed by shotgun hunters and then they're they go to neighboring farms and they don't come back until the springtime yeah until it's green and they have a place to hide again because yep. the last time they were there <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah absolutely well and that's so i actually got got close on public last year i mean just i had to work and walk a long ways and find just nasty areas if you want to hear a real good kick so i'm hunting i found this good spot good big giant rubs a doe comes running in like the 25th, 28th of December. And I'm like, okay, we're getting a little secondary rut. Look behind her. I'm like, oh, there's horns. Here it comes. Six pointer, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> so in Missouri, where I hunt, it's a four point restriction. I was like, you got to be kidding. And the only deer I can't shoot comes running in. But the other thing is with you, Dan, you hunt a lot of out of state stuff. 
in that October time. Yeah. I mean, you're still trying to take advantage and learn and, and hunt those, you know, other states in that time. Yeah. Well, mule deer in a completely different terrain feature like set. I mean, I went to Michigan last year too, but that's that far where I hunted in Michigan was pretty similar to the, the terrain that I hunt in Iowa. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily big woods like Northern Michigan, but it was, you know, it was farm, farm ground for the most part. I mean, there's ag all over the place. So there's that. Yeah. So, well, I tell you what, man, um, I really appreciate you taking time, you know, to come on and, uh, chat about, you know, learning to bow hunt and how, and I think that, I don't know, I'm going to say a comment and I want you to tell me what you think of it as a bow, as a bow hunter, you never stop learning. Never, 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 yeah, never. So I, uh, Roth, man, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on and, and share your stories with us and chat with us. Hopefully, uh, there's something to take away from this conversation by, you know, from those who are needing some growth or, or want some additional growth. So thanks again, man. Hey, you're welcome. Hey, you keep forgetting to tell everybody to uh, wear some sort of safety harness, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, that should be, I, I thought I said it enough to where it should be no-brainer by now. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I agree, but uh, it, it's one of those that I was thinking about that the other day. I was like, man, I don't know when the last time I heard Dan say that. <laughs> How about I say it right now? Wear your damn safety harness. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, Dan. I absolutely love those conversations. So uh, thanks for taking time out of your day to listen all the way through. Appreciate every download I get from you guys, man. I, I'm uh, I'm just jacked uh, that this like I am where I am in the, at this point in my life, and a lot of it has to do with you guys who uh, are downloading and listening to this content. Other than that, a uh, huge shout out to you. Huge shout out to the partners, Ozonix, Wasp, Lone Wolf, and Vortex Optics. Please go out and support those companies that support this podcast. And other than that, uh, stay tuned because we are going to be having a lot more strategy-driven content coming out of this particular podcast and on the uh, Sportsman's Nation as a whole. So uh, stick around for that. I All I want is for everybody to have their best season ever, whether that's killing more deer, whether that's killing your first deer, or whether that is killing the biggest buck or stepping up, say, hey, I don't want to kill two-year-olds anymore. I want to kill three-year-olds. Hey, I don't want to kill three-year-olds. I want to kill uh, four-year-olds. Hey, I don't want to kill small antlered deer. I want to kill big antlered deer. Um, so... You know, whatever your goal is, my goal is to help you achieve your goal. So uh, a lot more information coming this, uh, this summer. So stay tuned and we'll talk to you on the next episode. Good vibes in and good vibes out, my friends. Talk to you next time.